Let us now open God's word that he would begin to teach us. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 22 and 2 Kings chapter 1. We'll begin in 1 Kings 22. Verse 51, and we'll read through the end of Second Kings chapter 1. If that uh, reading selection seems odd, it's good to remember that the book of Kings was originally one book. It was just uh, divided into two for practical purposes because you can only make scrolls so big. And so it is meant to be read as, as one book. So we begin then in 1 Kings chapter 21 verse or 22 verse 51 Ahaziah the son of Ahab began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat king of Judah and he reigned 2 years over Israel He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal, and worshipped him, and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger, in every way that his father had done. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria, and lay sick. So he sent messengers, telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty. He went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of a hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. 
And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 37, stanzas 12 and 14 through 16. The text to which we'll be giving our attention this morning is 2 Kings chapter 1. You can see it's a contained unit, and so we'll keep the whole chapter as our text. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we come again to the book of Kings where we were many months before, and the goal is to continue working through the book of Kings for at least the next several months As we step back into it then, it's good to reflect on the goals that we had when we came into the book of Kings the first time around, or or through the first part of the book of Kings. Our goals are, in the first place, our greatest goal is to get to know our God better by seeing his hand at work in history. Uh, 75% of the Bible is made up of historical narrative. that's, that's the majority of our Bible, telling stories about the things that God has done in history. And so these things are valuable for us simply to reflect on, to get to know our God better. We also do this because we want to learn to see ourselves in God's story as well. As you reflect on what God has done in the past, you can see more clearly what God is doing in the present And as you reflect on the role of God's people that they had in those times, we begin to see more clearly the role that God has for us in our time. We're in a different chapter, but we're still in the same story of God's redemption. We also read these stories because they contain warnings, warnings that we have to learn that history can teach. There's the old phrase that if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. And finally, we want to also study these because there are examples of faith in these stories, examples of faith from our brothers and sisters in that time. And we we can and we should learn from them. That's what uh, Hebrews, the the book of Hebrews very clearly teaches, especially in Hebrews 11 and 12, describing the examples of faith and then teaching us to look ultimately to Jesus, the author and perfecter of both their faith and ours. And so we do well to also consider the lives of faith 
from God's people in that time and consider what can we learn from them. Well, in 2 Kings chapter 1, we get a a nice introduction to the book of Kings because it's another one of those strange and, and fairly unknown and mysterious chapters of the Old Testament that probably leaves you with piles of questions and hardly any clear answers. And, and you might even wonder, what are the lessons that we are to learn from a chapter like this? The way the, to- the story is told, it's, it's almost told like a joke. Uh, you have so many of those jokes where one person walks into a bar and something happens, and then the next person walks into a bar, and then the third person, that's where the punchline is that. The way the story is told, it almost reflects that pattern, except that there's no punchline at all. It's deadly serious all the way through. And so we're left wondering, what does this story tell us about our God? For that matter, what does this story tell us about the value of human life, God sending fire down from heaven, consuming 51 at a time. In, in so many places in Scripture, we're told that human life is sacred and valuable because we're made in the image of God. Does this story contradict that teaching? It's certainly been accused of contradicting that teaching. So there are, there are questions that are certainly left with us as we reflect on this chapter. It all begins with Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, uh, through, through Jezebel. At this point, we can rejoice, if you remember back from 1 Kings, we can rejoice that at least the reign of King Ahab is finally over. But now we quickly realize with his son Ahaziah that the apple didn't fall far from the tree, as the saying goes. 1 Kings 22 tells us that Ahaziah did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother Jezebel and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. It's a pretty bad starting point. So it seems like everything that went wrong with Ahab starts all over again with his son Ahaziah, as these things so often do from one generation to the next. Well, 2 Kings 1 is the only chapter that we have that tells us about Ahaziah's life. And we don't really get to learn anything about what Ahaziah accomplished during his reign. Instead of focusing on his life as king, it focuses instead on the very last days of his life and what they tell us about his relationship with God. And the author's expectation is that as we look at this, we don't just learn about Ahaziah the king, or Ahaziah, the man, but ultimately that we learn something about our God and how he expects us to relate to him. And that's then where we'll pull the theme from this text for this sermon. I gave the sermon this theme. The only true God expects our deepest trust and demands our complete surrender. And we'll see four points in this chapter. You can see them pretty clearly sticking out in the text. First, forgetting God and consulting someone else is inexcusable. Secondly, opposing God is dangerous. Thirdly, surrender to God is necessary. And fourth, avoiding God's word is futile. Well, the story begins with Ahaziah falling through the lattice. That's the the thin 
wooden screen. Of course, they didn't have mosquito screens the way that we do, but they often had these thin wooden screens. Uh, and it was in his window in, in his room in the palace in Samaria. You know how, how your mother always told you not to lean back in the chair because chairs aren't made for leaning back in? Well, the same is true for window lattices. They're thin, fragile pieces of wood. And so Ahaziah is sitting in his window, leaning back on this, and it broke, and he fell through the window. And it was obviously a very serious fall because uh, he, he sent someone to find out whether he would live or not as a result, whether he would ever recover. So he must have hit his head or, or broken his neck or his back or something serious. But the shocking thing in this text is where Ahaziah goes for answers. Surely the the author, as we read this, expects us to just stop and think, wait, he went went where? He did what? Verse 2 says, uh, he, he said, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. Now, I don't think we should excuse Ahaziah here and say, well, he probably didn't know any better. After all, he's the son of Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, That's certainly true. It's true. His parents worshipped Baal, and so he would have picked that up from his parents. But that doesn't mean he didn't know who Yahweh was, and he didn't know Israel's history. He knew, as the king of Israel, that he was supposed to be a worshiper of Yahweh. And in fact, you can even see that in his name. It's Ahaziah, uh, which means in Yahweh's hands. His name wasn't Ahaz Baal, it was Ahaziah. And that Yah refers to Yahweh. So at least in name, he is a worshiper of the true God. He ought to have known better. And yet he didn't turn to the true God for answers. Instead, he turns to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Ekron is deep in Philistine territory. It's interesting, uh, we we have records of this god. He was a well-known god. But his real name was not Beelzebub, it was Beelzebul, which means Lord of Princes. And the author of Kings apparently doesn't even want to write out his name out loud, and so instead he calls him Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies. It's sort of an insult to this god who was very popular in, in the surrounding area. Now, the text doesn't say why. Why Ahaziah went to that god instead of to Yahweh. Maybe he had heard some rumor that this particular god was good at fixing broken backs or, or damaged heads or something like that. Or maybe he just didn't believe that Yahweh had any answers for him. Or maybe, perhaps most likely, he knew that any serious prophet of Yahweh wouldn't have good news for him, and so he decided to go to some other god instead. He knew he was living in rebellion. And so what we see is that Ahaziah acted in a moment of need in accordance with his beliefs. It's an important thing to recognize here. On his deathbed, he didn't suddenly develop true faith in the living God or or come suddenly to a right understanding of God. No, he did exactly what you would expect a lifelong worshiper of Baal to do. In the hour of need, he turned to the God that he'd been worshiping his entire life. This is a principle that's true 
for all of us. Anyone who thinks that, that they're going to get right with God on their deathbed or, or when they get older, they're kidding themselves. It's true that, that stare, death staring us in the face can, can make us suddenly very serious about eternal matters. But by that point, repentance is far, far out of a person's reach. I've heard people say this. I had friends growing up who would say this. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become a believer or I'm going to go worship God later in my life or when I'm old or when I'm on my deathbed. Then I'm going to start worshiping God. Then I'm going to repent. But for now, I'm going to live the life I want to live. When you get to that point, repentance will no longer be within your reach. If someone has never trusted God during their entire life on earth, not to mention the fact that they could die unexpectedly, but if, even if they don't and they reach the end of their life, there's not going to be any more room for repentance because repentance is a gift from God. It doesn't come by our own willpower. It can happen by God's grace. You think, for example, of the thief on the cross who repented in his last hours, but that isn't entirely within God's grace. And remember, there were two thieves crucified next to Jesus, and only one of them repented. So many people assume that once they get to that point, then they'll be able to repent. And, and it's foolishness because repentance is a gift from God. It doesn't come except by God's grace. And so Ahaziah on his deathbed did exactly what you would expect a lifelong unbeliever to do. He continued in his unbelief and he continued to go to all the wrong places for answers. Nevertheless, it's still meant to be shocking to us because he is the king of Israel. It, it presents a very dark picture of the kingdom of Israel in that day. He's a worshiper of Yahweh in name, and yet we realize that profession, that name, is a lie. And, and the authors certainly want us to, to stop and reflect on, on the tragedy of, of that reality when the king of God's people is turning to a foreign god for answers. And that's why God sends Elijah to Ahaziah's messengers. And the message that he brings is, is also very clearly the big message of the chapter because you notice it's repeated three times, that question in verse 3, in verse 6, and then again in verse 16. The question that God tells Elijah to ask Ahaziah is, is it because there's no god in Israel? that you're going to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, in order to, to inquire of him. The sarcasm there is, is so obvious, but the, the sadness is as well. God is the only living God, and if there's one place in the world that that ought to have been well known, it should have been in Israel. Surely an Israelite king would turn to the living God for answers, and yet tragically, he does not. He may have claimed, uh, and he almost certainly did claim, in fact, archaeological records show that he claimed to be both a, a worshiper of Yahweh and a worshiper of Baal. That's how the Israelites saw themselves in that day. They, they would say, we are worshiping Yahweh, we just worship Baal as well. But in the hour of need, when we need answers, when we need somewhere to go, 
That's when our real God shows who he is, uh, when, what, when what we really believe is manifested. So as the Catechism says, uh, one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is a complete Savior, uh, or, excuse me, either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who trust in him will find all that is necessary for their salvation in him. Christ himself said the same thing. A man cannot serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. In the hour of need, when we need answers, that's when we reveal who our God really is. Now, we might ridicule Ahaziah for thinking that a dumb Philistine God would be the right place to look, but that's what they believed in their time. The question is still posed to us as well. Where do we turn for answers in the hour of need? What do we trust? Because the way that we respond in the hour of need demonstrates whether we will recognize that the living God is our God as well. Where we turn demonstrates what we believe. For example, how often is prayer our first response in the hour of need when crisis strikes or when questions come crashing into our lives? Is prayer the first place that we go? Or is prayer something like a last resort? Is it something that we do when we feel like all our other options have run out but not the first place that we go? If so, then we can rightly ask the question, is it because there's no God in the church that we would turn instead to money or our own resources or our own powers or our friends or the the government instead of our God in the first place. Where we turn first demonstrates what we believe. Where do we turn for answers to our culture's demise? Is our first response to pray to the sovereign Lord who rules over nations Or is our first response to think, how can we get involved politically in order to stop these people that are ruining our country? Do we consider ourselves uh, pragmatic people because we work first and then pray? Is it because there's no God in Canada that we expect to find the answers to our culture's demise in politics? Where do we turn when we look for answers about human history, about where we come from, or about the meaning of history? of human life? Is it because there's no word from God that we turn to the priest of Darwinism for answers, of, uh, answers about our history, about where we come from? What would Elijah say to those who turn to horoscopes for answers about what their day will bring? He would ask, is it, is it because there's no God in your life that you turn to the stars for answers instead? Or let's be... Uh, even more practical, what about secular counseling? There, there are many Christians who, who would prefer secular counseling over Christian counselors because they don't trust that Christian counselors are professional enough because they don't have the government degrees. Now, I'm not talking here about, uh, about people with, with physiological needs, with needs for, for medicine and those with, with simple chemical imbalances. We're talking here about counseling. Uh, The sad reality is that there are many Christians who fall for the lie of 
professionalism, who trust in those government degrees and walk right past the Christian counselor's office because they don't believe that the Bible has the answers that they need and they need professionals to give the answers instead. They trust the world for the real answers. God's word can suffice to encourage on the fringes and the margins of our lives, but the world has the real answers in the hour of need. We need to recognize the field of psychology is, is more religious than it is scientific. Psychology is a spiritual field. In fact, the, the very term psychology means the study of the soul. And entire approaches in the world to psychology are based on the assumption that there is no God and there is no such thing as sin. And therefore, many of the answers that are given are, are answers that would encourage you to pursue a life of sin. They don't factor in the, the reality of the brokenness of this world and, and the, the, the ugliness of sin and the holiness of God. Where do we turn for answers in the hour of need? Where we turn first demonstrates what we put our trust in. Forgetting God, as Ahaziah did, is inexcusable. God refused to tolerate the fact that Ahaziah went somewhere else first. Now, it's not that one cannot pursue answers in God's world. It's not that the world, even the, the unbelieving world, cannot stumble upon the truth. They certainly can in, in certain areas. But that can only be done as Christians in the context of trusting God, of accepting His Word, and, and turning first to Him for the answers, and turning first to Him in prayer. If we trust the answers of, of godless religions or godless philosophies above God's word, that is idolatry. And Kings, the book of Kings shows us again that that is inexcusable. Our God is a jealous God. So that's our first point then. Forgetting God is inexcusable. Second, we see that opposing God is dangerous. That's what Ahaziah does next. In that respect, he's, he's really even worse than his father Ahab. Every time that Elijah confronted Ahab, uh, you can think of after Ahab had innocent Naboth executed, Ahab, Ahab did respond aggressively towards Elijah initially, but he did eventually submit to him. And God even, in, at least in one case, had mercy on Ahab. But now... Now that his son is on the throne, we see an even more aggressive, opposing attitude towards God. Elijah confronts Ahaziah, and he goes and sends soldiers to go and arrest Elijah. Now maybe Ahaziah was the sort of son who thought that his father was a weakling and was too soft on those prophets of God. And now that he's in charge, he's going to see to it that they're put away for good. And whatever his reasoning is, he sends these soldiers after Elijah. And the soldiers find Elijah sitting at the top of a hill. The captain comes forward and orders Elijah in the name of the king. You notice he uses the authority of the king. He orders him to come down. And Elijah responds, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And the text says that's exactly what happened. Well, amazingly, the king sends another captain of 50 men. And it's hard to imagine what was going through their minds. Maybe they didn't believe that what, what they heard from the first uh, group. However, the rumor made its way 
back to them. Maybe they simply didn't believe it, or maybe they thought, as, as many people did, that the gods of the, those days were limited in their, in their powers. They can send fire down once, but then they sort of have to recharge the way it works in, in computer games. They thought a lot of, like uh, about the gods in those same terms. They have limited power. And, and so the, the second captain comes to go and arrest Elijah. And, and the second captain's order is even bolder. He, he says it even stronger. The king says, come down and do so quickly. Well, Elijah responds the same way to him. And again, fire from heaven fell on this man and his soldiers. Now, some people, when they read a chapter like this, they're going to object that this can only be the stuff of legend. It couldn't have, have actually happened. And, and because we live in our, in our modern age of science and, and skepticism, it can be tempting even for us to, to read a chapter like this and dismiss it as, as mere legend. Well, in the end, it, it comes down to what we believe about our God. Do we believe in a God whose hand is still busy and active in this world? Do we believe in a God who created the universe and everything in it and acts within that universe to accomplish his purposes, sometimes by sending fire, sometimes by sending angels, sometimes by blinding the eyes of his enemies? The fact is, that's the God of the Bible, and that's the God that we're going to see in the next many, many chapters of the book of Kings. We're confronted with a God who works miracles, and if we dismiss it from the outset, we're not going to be able to see our God in the pages ahead. This is the God of Scripture. And so how we regard a chapter like this really comes down to what we believe about our God. The fact is, God has throughout history worked in miraculous and stunning ways in history. And scripture from front to back records these ways. And, and he still does work in these ways. Perhaps some of you have experienced God's miraculous hand at work in your lives. There's no scriptural basis for the, the belief that many modern Christians have that God doesn't work in these ways any longer. There's nowhere in scripture that teaches that. In the West, our, our eyes can so easily be blinded by, by the skepticism of our age, by the materialism of our culture. And this is why it can be so helpful for us to be involved in, in the mission fields uh, and to, to follow those updates and to stay in contact with those missionaries because outside of our culture, this is not regarded as a controversial fact that God works in powerful and miraculous ways. Uh, you think also of, of Christians, the stories of Christians who have experienced persecution and have seen God's hand in, in particularly special and miraculous ways as God is all the more near to those who suffer for his name's sake. Uh, they not only will see Satan and demons at work, in ways that we often are blinded to, they also have the privilege of seeing God at work in miraculous ways that we often don't see because our skeptical culture teaches us right from childhood to not see them and to dismiss them. 
Now, some people don't struggle with, with so much the, the legendary uh, nature of this, this uh, chapter as much as the ethical dilemmas presented by this chapter. Many people, when they read a passage like this, they, they object, and many of the commentaries that I read preparing this object that this chapter devalues human life. Well, make no mistake about what's happening in this chapter. Ahaziah wasn't just going in to haul in Elijah for a nice uh, chat, a good old talk. He, he was arresting him in order to have him killed. You don't send a commander of, of 50 soldiers in order to bring someone in for, for a good talk. And that's why when the third captain surrendered to, to Elijah, the angel of God specifically told Elijah to not be afraid because Previously, he had very good reason to be afraid. And so you have to first start with the question, who is it in the first place that's devaluing human life here? Who's the one seeking to arrest and kill an innocent human being? Well, with these soldiers, Ahaziah is declaring war on God and on God's prophet. There's no ethical dilemma here at all. God has every right to defend his people from those who would take their lives unjustly. These soldiers should have stepped out of line. They should have filed a a conscientious objection. They never should have followed the orders from the kings. In following them, they devalued their own human lives. Now, of course, many, many who object to this passage because they claim it devalues human life, they have no problem with the mass holocaust and dismemberment that is abortion in our own country and with the sale of of their body parts. It's all about what human life you're claiming to devalue. So a chapter like this may make us uncomfortable because it does confront us with the hard reality of a God who is holy and who is just and who does not leave sin unpunished. And it shows us what happens to those who would make war on God. If it doesn't happen on this side of eternity, it will happen on the other side. And that brings us then to our third point, which is surrender to God is absolutely necessary. The third captain does what the other two should have done. And you notice he's the only one who actually speaks of the the value of human life. He pleads with God, let our lives be precious in your sight. Human life is valuable. It's sacred even because we're made in God's image. But human beings who make war on God forfeit their lives to him. So the captain does what the other two should have done. He recognizes the value of his life and theirs, and he surrenders their lives then to God. So he pleads with Elijah in verse 13, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of 50 with their 50 men. But now let my life be precious in your sight. That's what surrender to God looks like. He pleads for mercy. He recognizes and he admits the truth and the seriousness of God's judgment. He doesn't deny what God had done to the other two, nor does he claim that it was unjust of God. And then he begs God to see his life as valuable. 
That's what it means, really, to to recognize the value and the sanctity of human life. To know that God's honor still has the greatest value and that if we love human life, we will in the first place submit it to God's honor. Now notice he he also says, my life and and the life of these 50 servants of yours. So not these 50 servants of of mine, but he even surrenders his authority to Elisha. He says these 50 servants, uh, excuse me, to Elijah. Uh, so he says these 50 servants of yours, and, and therefore by extension, these 50 servants of God's. These are words then of surrender. He's acknowledging that God has a higher claim of authority over him and over his men than the king Ahaziah has. He was essentially saying then to Elijah, we are all at your command. I have no intention of carrying out any orders except by your permission. There's a, there's a lesson for us to, to learn from that as well. When wicked rulers set themselves against God, then those under them, especially those in government or those in the military, they have the right and even the duty to pledge allegiance to God rather than to men. That's exactly what this captain does. And you'll notice this captain doesn't resign from his position. That's the way that many uh, Christians today would would argue that that public officials ought to respond when they're given orders from the government to, to... to go against God's law, that they ought to simply resign. That's not what this captain did. He held his position, but surrendered it to God. This is why also in the time of the Reformation, the Reformers had developed a doctrine that they called the, uh, that, that became called the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. And what it simply means is that Officials in government, like like city uh, or state magistrates or mayors or officers in the military or clerks in in courthouses, have a God-given duty to obey God rather than men and have no need to surrender their or, or resign from their position. They can refuse orders from above if they are contrary to God's law and may even, if necessary, revoke their allegiance to higher authorities. This happened many times during the Reformation as the kings or princes of Germany uh, refused allegiance to the emperor of the uh, the Holy Roman Emperor. They, They held their position, they refused to resign, but they said we will not obey ungodly orders to persecute the evangelical church. Well, the day may come in, in this country as well. In, indeed, it has already begun to come. When, when officials are, are, are given orders from above to act against the church, they have the duty and the right to disobey those orders. Those in government are obligated by God not only to fulfill their oaths to defend the Constitution, but also, even more seriously, to pledge their highest allegiance to God. That's what this captain does, and it certainly presents a model for Christian leadership in government also for us today. And so the angel of the Lord then says to Elijah, Go down with that man. Do not be afraid of him. And Elijah then goes. And it's surprising, it's intentionally surprising how abruptly the story ends. All this conflict, all this tension, all this opposition to Elijah. And in the very next verse, Elijah appears before the king. 
and tells him the exact same message that he's already heard back in verse 6. The same message that prompted him to arrest Elijah in the first place. And the very next verse after that tells us Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord. That's why there's our fourth point. Avoiding God's word is futile. It's what Ahaziah did from the beginning of the chapter to the end. He hated the message that Elijah would bring. He demanded Elijah's arrest. And in the end, all he got was the same message. And then he died, exactly according to the word of the Lord. After all the effort that he made, all his efforts turned futile. It's as if the author is, is implying here, at the very end of the chapter, he wants, us, he wants to ask us, what? What did you think was going to happen after Elijah got arrested? God's word called Ahaziah to repentance, and resistance was not going to get him anywhere. He could resist God's word with all his efforts and, and be dragged along, kicking and screaming, and yet it doesn't do a thing to change the message that God had given him. He should have known from his father's life already after his father had, if you remember, his father had threatened and then imprisoned Micaiah the prophet and because Micaiah said he was going to die on the battlefield. And so Micaiah got imprisoned and Ahab died on the battlefield exactly as Micaiah had told him. It seems Ahaziah, his son, still hadn't learned this lesson. Resistance against God's word gets us nowhere. Now, things may not happen here on earth to every sinner the same way that it happened to Ahaziah. But, it may, but, but, our, but the, the warning in this text is, may it also then not happen on the final day. Because the same thing is true. God's word calls us to repentance. Resistance is not going to get us anywhere. We can... It's easy enough right now if we want to to resist God's word, and and there are many who do so. We can make excuses for ourselves. We can attempt to redefine God's word with our own three-pound fallen brains. We can use the Greek and the Hebrew to try and make the Bible say something else so that we feel better about what the Bible teaches. We can argue that it says the opposite of what it really says. Uh, We can attempt to argue why God is okay with our lifestyles or our sins, but it's the same spirit as Ahaziah resisting the word of God, and it ultimately gets us nowhere. Doing that will gain us nothing on the final day. God will simply tell us, no, I meant exactly what I said, and really, you knew it all along. The spirit of Ahaziah makes war on the messenger uh, and on the message instead of simply submitting to the message. But the outcome is going to be the same either way. If we manage to silence the messenger, and convince ourselves that God's word doesn't really say what it looks like it says, or it doesn't apply to us for the reasons that we might have for for not applying it to us, it's not going to do us any good if on the final day God says, yes, it does mean what it says, and it does also apply to you. We can resist God's word all day long, or our entire life long, whether by threats or by walking away from the church or by joining a more tolerant 
church or by other sophisticated reasons that we might have to ignore what the Word of God plainly says to us. But at the end of the day, it doesn't gain a single human being anything. We can't change God's mind. We can only repent when He calls us to repent. That's our only option. Repentance and forgiveness in Christ. And now, before it's too late. And that's why he gives us his word, and he gives us warnings like he gives us in first in Second Kings chapter one, and he gives us them in the context of the gospel, and he gives them now so that we can heed those warnings now, because his promises are just as sincere as his threats and his warnings. His promises that anyone who turns from their sin during this life and puts their faith in Christ and confesses their sins and turns to him as Lord and looks to him for mercy will be forgiven. There's no need to be like Ahaziah and resist God's word to the bitter end. We can instead run to the the same God who gives us warnings because he also gives us promises and means them just as much as he means his warnings. Think of Isaiah 55, verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He gives us his word now to warn us, because he means his promises as much as he means his warnings. And he doesn't warn us in order to condemn us. He warns us in order to turn us back to him in repentance. And those who who truly are his sheep will do so. Well, Ahaziah apparently was not one of those sheep, at least as far as we can tell. As the rest of the, the story of Kings shows, there's a continued downward spiral in the kingdom of Israel. But even in those dark times, it's important to recognize that God was still very much at work. He worked through his servants like Elijah and through the many others in that day who did not bow the knee to Baal, as he reminds us all the way back in in 1 Kings 19. And those men and women, we can only imagine how they must have prayed for their church and for their nation They prayed for repentance, and they prayed for the coming of the Messiah. The prophets who wrote this record also of Israel's kings, they also looked persistently ahead to the day when that Messiah, that Savior, would come. They knew that he would come. They trusted God's promise that he would come, and they prayed hard for it. And we know, of course, he did come as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, living the life that we should have lived in order to die the death that we deserved to die and to rise again, to ascend, to be the king that Ahaziah never was, never could be, to establish his church and to call even the far-off lands like Canada to repentance and faith in him. So brothers and sisters, let us then look to the king and the savior that God has sent, confident that his kingdom of righteousness will grow and his church will grow and we have the privilege of being members of that kingdom and so let us as members of that kingdom not 
be like Ahaziah, but instead submit ourselves to his will and keep our minds and our hearts sensitive and open to hearing the warnings of God's word if he should choose to warn us. Far better that he rebuke us now so that we turn back to him and find his grace than that we should perish in our stubbornness like someone like Ahaziah. He expects our deepest trust and he demands our complete surrender. And when we do, we have the privilege and the pleasure of being his loyal, faithful servants as part of the kingdom that he is building. Amen.